So hello and welcome to the Poetry Pause, a podcast from a cowshed in West Wales. Uh, today we're talking about Welsh poet Gillian Clark, which is very exciting for both of us because she's kind of local and we know lots about her. Emma, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you today? Good, I'm very good. What's been happening in your world? I've been working, I've been enjoying the lovely sunny weather, which now has turned back to normal West Wales weather of rain. And uh, you're sporting some very lovely glasses for listeners. They're very cool and transparent. (laughs) I've just come from a civil partnership this weekend of two 65-year-olds, which is pretty joyous. And because they didn't want to be naff and they wanted to be funny and kind of not be inappropriate in any way, they made a poem up, each of them, about how they'd met. So one one was set in a car park uh, and the other one was kind of more about the relationship elements. And they were great. And it just made me think about how fantastic poetry is is in saying stuff that people couldn't say in any other way. Anyway, let's get cracking on Gillian Clark. What do we know about her? So Gillian Clark was born in 1937 in Cardiff and in World War II she came to Pembrokeshire to stay with her gran and I think that may have been what drew her back to West Wales in adulthood maybe uh, and her connection with the nature that surrounds us. Yeah, she lived sort of Cardiff way, didn't she? Went to university in Cardiff, lived in Barry for a bit. She lived in Barry. And then I think when the kids were quite young, she moved to, is it? Blindcourt. So she moved to Blindcourt and bought that for, I think, £450. Amazing. And did it up, really, didn't she? She has had quite, you know, considerable achievement in terms of poetry, mm, hasn't she? Yeah. What, what did she do altogether? Well, she's co-founder of Teenoweth, the writing centre. She was former editor of Anglo-Welsh Review, which is now New Welsh Review. And she's got lots of accolades. She's won prizes for outstanding contribution to the arts in Wales. She's been on the judging panel for the Manchester Poetry Prize. She was National Poet of Wales... For eight years, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. And she's been shortlisted for the T. S. Eliot Prize as well. Okay. And she won the Queen's Award for yeah. po- poetry in two thousand and ten. So yeah. she lives in Ceredigion now, which yeah. is about as rural as you can get. Mm-hmm. She founded T. Newith, didn't she? A writing retreat yeah. in North Wales, which was Lloyd George's house for three years. Have you been there? No, I haven't. Have you? Yeah, I have. It is amazing. It's in an amazing location and it's a really wonderful place. Fantastic atmosphere. I went on a script writing course. It was really fantastic. But I noticed that Gillian Clark and Caroline Duffy are running a masterclass at the start of May. I think you have to sort of audition to get on it. Yeah. And it is about 700 quid. Mm. The applications are closed anyway, but... So she's still going strong. Yeah. I would love to go to one of her classes. I would love to, yeah. Probably not at that price. <laughs> so have you got a sort of overview of her poetry? What makes it distinctive? For me, what makes it distinctive is that it, it feels very personal and um, can be very quiet, but speak of bigger things. And some of it is deceptively straightforward. Like, it's easy to understand but when you really study it, it speaks of much 
bigger things and often through nature as well. And I just love it. Yes, mm. I do too, actually. I mean, she's the poet that I have kind of most affinity with in terms of life as it yeah. is being lived, or, you know, mm. has been lived. It does feel very familiar to us. I don't know it's because we come from West Wales. Yeah, or... she's our woman, really. Yeah. OK, so what poem have you chosen to start? Yeah. So the poem that I've chosen that represents everything that I love about Gillian Clark's work is Still Life. OK. Shall I read it? Yeah. It was good tonight to polish brass with you, our hands slightly gritty with brasso, as they would feel if we'd been in the sea, salty. It was as if we burnished our friendship, polished it until all the light drowning tarnish of deceit were stroked away. Patterns of incredible honesty delicately grew, revealed quite openly to the pressure of the soft torn rag. We made a yellow gold still life out of clocks, candlesticks and kettles. My sadness puzzled you. I rubbed the full curve of an Indian goblet, feeling its illusory heat. It cooled beneath my fingers, and I read in the braille formality of pattern, in the leaf and tendril and stylized tree, that essentially each object remains cold, separate, only reflecting the other's warmth. Hmm, so... Why do you like that so much? It's just got everything for me. It's a very domestic scene and very quiet, but it's just so amazing. I mean, the way it ends really resonated with me. You know, as we're coming out of COVID, we've all felt a little bit about how we, you know, find warmth from spending time with other people. Yes. yeah, and how much it means to us. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And it's, you know, it goes through all the kind of feelings that you get from having a close relationship with anyone, a friend, a family member. It's, you know, it's not always easy and it's not always straightforward and, you know, it has a little tug to it, but just spending time together can make that easier. Yes, yes. Mm. So she does this a lot in her poetry doesn't she I think it's a sort of key to it in a way she'll describe something that may be quite mundane or domestic or very familiar and then it'll take on a much bigger kind of universal quality really so it's the sort of awesome in the everyday in a way yeah it's very interesting to me that you pick this poem and I do love it very much as a poem but I have a defining memory in my head of being in the kitchen with my mother and Matty Morris who was my mother's best friend (laughs) they were both incidentally in the communist cell in Carmarthen which was very small and they were cleaning brass and I remember thinking I will never clean brass in my life. (laughs) So I haven't got any brass and why would you be doing it? I just thought. But of course they were having a great clonk at the time and doing exactly what she describes in the poem, which is being friends together. But the sort of uselessness of this brass, I could not really understand, you know. Well, this is a really visual poem for me. Like when I read it, I feel like everything else 
stops and it, and everything kind of goes dark and zones in and all I can see is this kind of burnished brass, yes. this gold colour. Yeah. And I find it quite kind of therapeutic to... The outside world disappears and I'm just taken right into this moment. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like a conversation between two people with no words. It's, yeah. It's very silent and slow and methodical. Yeah, and I, which is how cleaning the brass would have been. Yeah. And also it's almost like the friendship has got this burnished warmth. Yeah. 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 It's very good. So she's spoken of poetry as word music. Mm. And... I think really, really distinctively, she writes for the year. Her poetry is so good to listen to. And one of the things she did when she was National Poet of Wales, because her poems were on the GCSE and A-level syllabus, she recorded lots of them, put them on a website, which Mm. is a really great thing to do. So she's really good to listen to. And the poetry is very lyrical, it's dramatic, but she uses plain language. Is how unusual it is to hear a Welsh female voice, Mm. you know, being out in public. I mean, we've got Keris Matthews now, but you don't often hear one. And I do feel that Welsh female voices are kind of underrepresented, Mm. especially when you compare with, say, Scottish women's voices or Irish women's voices. We don't hear them much. And there's a lightness about it and there's a lyricism Mm. about it. So I love that she's written quite a lot of sonnets, which I'm fixated on at the moment because I think they're the sort of perfect length for a poem. And I went on a very good sonnet writing course with somebody called Leanne Modem, who was great. Mm. And a poem that I really like is Old Libraries. I like list poems anyway, but there's such an atmosphere in Old Libraries and second-hand bookshops that I think she's captured here. So, Old Libraries. Shelved quietly out of sight and mind, the dog-eared, the foxed, the uncut, unread, the sagging slipped, asleep, inclined... On the shoulders of stiff volumes no one reads. Pressed between their pages, wedding flowers, fingerprints, last will and testament. Letters of longing, love, condolence. A final note before the long descent from a bridge over black water, far from home in someone else's town. And maybe once the scarcely legible lines of long hand, like veins on the crumpled wings of the emerging moth, a lost sonnet soars on one unfolded wing to the world's applause. So what was it you liked about this specifically? Well, what I love about the atmosphere in old libraries and old bookshops, actually, is the possibility that you might find something marvellous. The lost sonnet soaring on one unfolded wing to the world's applause is that you might find something brilliant there. You you know, you don't know what's there. Those Mm. books have just been put there. I mean, you at the museum, you've got, you sell secondhand books, don't you? And there's that feeling just sitting there amongst those. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think that... The list makes that point of the endless possibilities of what you might find in these books. Yes, she is very good at rhyme and 
alliteration mm. and those technical aspects of poetry writing. Yeah. Do you think Welsh helps with that? I think Welsh is certainly a very lyrical language and so in that respect it helps. She's had an interesting relationship with Welsh because she yeah. wasn't brought up speaking it. Her no. mum, who was a nurse and quite aspirational, she says, yeah. wanted her to speak English, mm-hmm. which was actually the same in my upbringing. Yeah. But her father did like Welsh. She was an mm. um, outside broadcast engineer for the BBC. And her mother used to say every time she heard Gillian on radio... You were good. You didn't sound too Welsh. Mm, That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, so Gillian learned Welsh as an adult, didn't she? And, of course, now has gone on to do some amazing translation Mm. work. Well, it's the word music again, isn't it? It's the rhyme and rhythm and the the sound. It's lovely poetry to read aloud. Yeah. Yeah, she talks a bit about how you kind of learn to understand a word with your body before you really know what it means. Yeah. And how learning a language later in life, it takes that away from you a little bit because that's something you experience as a child. Yeah, Um, you don't have that sort of visceral connection. And I think the choice of words in this poem, they really reveal that. Sagging, slipped, asleep, dog-eared, you kind of know what those mean from the sound and yeah. you can feel it yeah it's interesting in these days of libraries being shut and things mm. i think this is a great subject to write a poem about yeah and it's kind of about potential really isn't mm. it in her prose books which have both been published by carcanet mm. She writes quite a bit about Welsh. She says, A lost language represents the obliteration of a culture, a monument rubbed clean of words. And to speak two languages is to be in two minds, to see both sides. Welsh means them, the strangers. Cymru means us, Mm. we who belong. It must make a difference to a poet to live in a bilingual country to hear two drums beating. And she does use some... Welsh in her poems. So she's, there's one I think about, it's a love poem really, yeah. and that's got some Welsh in yeah. it. Yeah, there's Gwell er Gwaith, for better, for worse. Ah, oh, right, and that's a, it's a love poem, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so that's sort of topped and tailed in Welsh, as mm. I remember, isn't it? Yeah. It's just great to have this sort of Welshness. <laughs> yeah. have chosen another sonnet, haven't you, as one of your favourites, Marged. She said quite a bit about this poem Mm. on the website. In 1984, I moved from Cardiff to the countryside to live alone by choice for one winter in Blaincourt. The cottage was romantically primitive, with oil lamps, a wood-burning stove and spring water. It was far from romantic for Marged half a century earlier. This poem is prompted by my guilt about Marged's life and death, my gratitude for our life today in her house, my sympathy for her as a woman, the things we had in common, the differences between us, between women's lives then and now. These differences lie in the poem's language. And um, then 
she goes on to be very specific about the poem. So shall we hear it? Yeah. Margaret. I think of her sometimes when I lie in bed, falling asleep in the room I have made in the roof space, over the old dark parlour where she died, alone in winter, ill and penniless. Lighting the lamps, November afternoons, a reading book, whiskey gold in my glass. At my typewriter, tapping under stars at my new roof, radio tunes and a dog for company, or parking the car where through the mud she called her single cow up from the field, under the sycamore. Or looking at the hills she looked at too, I find her broken crocks digging her garden. What else do we share? But being women. Yeah, that's really great, isn't it? I find her broken crocks. Mm. And it's a very simple line, but it kind of says so much. Yeah. And it reminds me of the project that you've been doing at the museum. Do you want to say a little bit more about it? Where people have oh, been yeah. We've, doing stuff with crocks. Yeah, I've been working with Linda Norris, who is an artist. Uh, together we've been running poetry workshops where people bring shards it's called bards and shards project that they've either found in their gardens or their homes or has some relevance to their own lives or their own family and we've just been deep diving into these shards what they may have been who they may have belonged to how they make us feel and making poems and then linda's using vintage china and kind of upcycling it with lines from the poetry that people have created that's really lovely use of sort of memory and mm. physical bits and bobs, yeah. isn't it? And how physical things, even fragments, kind of hold a memory yeah. in them that you may or may not actually know, but you can sense something or you can imagine yeah. something. Yeah. In her non-fiction, she writes about what are the most important prized qualities for her mm. in a writer. And I think she's talking about Dylan Thomas at this point. And she talks about the first thing is truth. Yeah. And the second thing is music. Mm. That's the second aspect. Those are the things that she is really, really keen on. Yeah. Um, I mean, she has talked a lot about how she writes, which I always love because I think it's really helpful for the rest of yeah. us. And one of the quotes I like is, my keywords are wonder, worship and story. Mm. Um, and she goes on to say, I'm not talking about religion, certainly not theology and absolutely not dogma. Wonder is what our ancestors felt. Worship arose from it and story was how they explained the inexplicable to themselves. Mm. She tells quite. She does quite a lot of storytelling in her poems. Yeah. One of her best-known poems is "Cold Nap," and that's about a little girl that her mum resuscitated. Yeah. Well, here's Julian Clark reading it. Mm-hmm. Cold Nap Lake. We once watched a crowd pull a drowned child from the lake, blue-lipped and dressed in water's long green silk, she lay for dead. Then, kneeling on the earth, a heroine, her red head bowed, her wartime cotton frock soaked, my mother gave a stranger's child her breath. The crowd stood silent, 
drawn by the dread of it. The child breathed, bleating and rosy in my mother's hands. My father took her home to a poor house and watched her thrashed for almost drowning. Was I there? Or is that troubled surface something else shadowy under the dipped fingers of willows, where satiny mud blooms in cloudiness after the treading heavy webs of swans as their wings beat and whistle on the air? All lost things lie under closing water in that lake with the poor man's daughter. Yeah. Is anything to say about Well, a line that really stands out for me from Coldnut is the um, the one about seeing her mother giving her breath. And I, I think that really captures this relationship between wonder and storytelling and the imagined, sometimes from quite childlike point of view, and truth, you know, the reality of a child is dying in front of her and her mother has to resuscitate her. That kind of you know, feeling of wonderment in the moment from yes. a child's point of view yeah. is is, yeah. is very interesting and kind of embodies what we've been talking about, about all of her poems. It's capturing the truth and the authenticity in a very lyrical and exciting way that yeah. drifts off in yeah. different directions. Yeah. She's spoken about this as well. Most poets know that poetry is grounded in the earliest experiences. Mm in memories too deep to name, stored in the senses rather than in the filing system of the conscious time. Yeah. Good. Okay. So I'm also really interested in the poem Babysitting. In the same way as Cold Nap Lake, it talks about difficult subjects in an honest way. Yeah. Shall we hear it? Yeah. Babysitting. I'm sitting in the wrong room listening for the wrong baby. I don't love this baby. She is sleeping a snuffly, roseate, bubbling sleep. She is fair. She's a perfectly acceptable child. I'm afraid of her. If she wakes, she will hate me. She will shout her hot midnight rage. Her nose will stream disgustingly, and the perfume of her breath will fail to enchant me. To her, I will represent absolute abandonment. For her, it will be worse than for the lover cold in lonely sheets, worse than for a woman who waits a moment to collect her dignity beside the bleached bone in the terminal ward. As she rises, sobbing from the monstrous land, stretching for milk, familiar, comforting, she will find me, and between us two, it will not come. It will not come. Right. That is not Gillian trying to be loved there, is it? No. And it's such, I think it's such a brave poem, you know, this kind of old-fashioned idea that we're all very maternal mm, all the time. Mm. It, the, and the honesty of it is so disarming. Yes. Uh, it's interesting because in her prose, again, she says what she thinks. And she talks about, in 2021, writing something for Reba, the Royal Institute of British Architects, and having word police mm. make her remove the word tramp mm. I don't know what they put as an alternative whether they put traveller but she was quite exercised about that mm. because she's written elsewhere about how imperialism worked through suppression of language yeah. 
So she isn't afraid to speak her mind. Mm. Yes, no, that is a very interesting poem because it's sort of almost deliberately setting out to... It makes me think of Hollywood films and novels where babysitters have not conformed to what they're expected to do. Well, I just think the courage of it, you don't always relate to children. No, no. You don't always want to be there. (laughs) It can be quite a scary job babysitting somebody if you don't like them. But it's a sort of assumption, isn't it, that women will care for small things. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so she's challenging that a bit. Great. So she wrote, she's written over a hundred poems. And in as recently as 2019, Faber published The God... The Godothin. The Godothin, which is a translation of the rise and fall of 363 warriors in the Battle of Catrice. And it was originally written down by a medieval scribe. Uh, It's a beautiful book. I'm excited to read it because I think it's going to improve my Welsh because it's got Welsh on one side and English Mm. on the other. Though it's probably a sort of quite a high form of Welsh, I imagine. It's a lovely book and almost a collectible thing. Mm. Have you you read it? No. In the past, I've read another translation of it. Yeah. 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 Okay, shall we do our own poems now and explain why we've done what we've done? Would you like to start? Okay. Yeah, great. Skirtings. It was the rule of three. Our overlappings distracting from pulled threads our two-way tugs laid down. We three caught the morning in our hands, Venus and wrung from one cloth. It was warm. We plunged the water, gave ourselves wholly to the work. And though turbid, the solution smelled like hope, nostalgic, medicinal, a poultice for the wound. We wiped sediment from skirtings, drank tea, You and she and me, a triad trying to polish things up. We poured our gritty spoil away, learned to let things settle, dampen down the dust. Great. I love that. That's beautifully written, Emma, and it really works on the ear, doesn't it? And you've got starting with the rule of three and you end with the triad. And who are the three? Me, my mum and my gran. Lovely. And have you done this fairly recently? Yeah, yeah, very recently. Right. Um, And like Gillian Clark says, I started with the title. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. And it works, I think, on the level of it could only be female, that kind of skirt idea. Yes. And also a very domestic task that we did together of washing the skirtings. It's, It's true. I tried to... I was inspired by uh, the poem that I chose, The Still Life. Yeah. To just choose a very simple moment, domestic moment. Yeah. When you were in the domestic moment, did you have a sort of poetry aha then? Or did you think about it afterwards? Um, I didn't think of writing a poem in the moment. But what I was very aware of in the moment is that we had a kind of common goal. And we were all just doing it and having a laugh. And everything else was forgotten. And, yeah. you know. Oh, there's some fantastic lines in it. We wiped sediment from skirtings. 
the rhythm goes with the action. You can mm. almost feel the wiping. It's great. And we poured our gritty spoil away. Learned to let things settle. Dampen down the dust. I mean, that's just brilliant. That last line. I know those last lines. I love it. Good. How long did it take you to write that poem? This was a very quick poem. I think allowing myself to just say it and be simple and use simple, plain, everyday language really took some of the pressure off for me to try and make things more complex than they yes. are. I mean, it's very much one of Julian Clark's things to avoid the Latinate, go for the simple. Yeah. And I think she says somewhere she... You know, she has an idea for a poem and then takes a few hours and it's mm. usually done. Yeah. But if you're doing a sort of bigger project, that's obviously going to take mm. longer and need to have more revision. Yeah. She says, in the outburst of a first idea, a few hours of work will bring a short poem into being. I have long thought about this in my efforts to help others with their writing. The most potent source of energy for me is intense concentration. It sounds so obvious that I wish I could find a more striking word than concentration without reaching for terms like meditation, mm -hmm. which suggests something quasi-religious. However, a creative concentration must be deep, uninterruptible and self-centred. The other useful intellectual task is research. And a true poet finds a voice to join in the dialogue of poetry. That seems to sum it up, doesn't it? Shall we hear your poem, Pippa? Yes. So, like you, I was very taken with Gillian Clark's description in Desert Island Discs of how she works from the title. And she says a lot of poets don't do that, but she does. So, my title is Channeling Joan Didion. And it is a sonnet, as I've taken a vow to only write sonnets now. Oh, Joan Didion, you write so cool and clear. You're in my earpods as I walk the dog. Your tales of the US, loathing and fear. Your steer is crystal, removes the fog. With you and Diane Keaton in my head, I feel like a complete sophisticate. You'll imbue me with literary cred, the sort of person who goes to the Tate. But to be more Joan, I get a French shirt. Although it's large, it doesn't quite fit. And much as I try, I can't write your hurt. Can't get your clarity or your dry wit. So, Joan, shall we make do with a fake Q&A? Questions from me and whatever you say? I love it. And to hear you read it as well, it it makes it, you know, even funnier and kind of the contrast of hearing a Welsh voice speak about being a sophisticate and visit going to the Tate is just it's quite amazing. <laughs> and when you say, I can't get your clarity or dry wit, you do definitely get both of those things. Well, thank so. you very much. I can't take any credit for it because I wrote it in Leanne Modem's excellent sonnet writing workshop a yeah. Sunday evening a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And she was so good at what sort of being dynamic and gentle mm. and most of us produced sonnets and loved the form by the end of it so yeah. that was very good really. yeah so, so I mean the opening line for me you know of Joan Didion playing in your ear while you're walking the dog the contrast between the two lifestyles is 
Yeah, I know. Although, of course, Joan Didion, uh, because I'm obsessive, I know much about Joan Didion. And she and John Gregory Dunn and Quintana did have a dog. Not yeah. dissimilar to mine, actually. Mm. And the, the thing about it, I think, is, which is, you know, in my background and in Julian Clark's background and probably in your background, is nonconformity. Um, Julian Clark is from a Baptist mm. background. And I think this notion of kind of total immersion yeah. encourages you to be a bit of a nerd, really. Mm. So I do sort of hope that when I'm listening, to, to be perfectly honest about it, when I'm listening to Joan Didion, some of her greatness is going to sort of seep into me oh, magically. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll wait and see on that one. Okay, so let's sum up then about Gillian. What do we think her sort of contribution is? And how does she inspire us? For me, she inspires me because, like all great poets, she writes about universal truth. But it could only be written in... In Wales, the you know the landscape is is Welsh. Her voice is very distinctly hers, and so it brings all of those things, things together. together for me. Yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, I have a lot of parallels with her because my in-laws were died in the same nursing home that her dad died in. I used to live quite near to Cold Nap Lake and mm. know it very well. And, of course, we are recording this on a small holding in West Wales. But the best one of all is the lady that inspired her was called Phyllis Williams, and it was her dad's sister. Yeah. And she was a railway clerk in Carmarthen, but she became a speech and drama teacher, and she was self-taught, Julian mm. says. And when I was small, I'm, you know, I'm a decades younger than Gillian, but I was sent to a speech teacher because I had a speech impediment, and it was Phyllis Williams. Really? And whereas she took the young Gillian to Stratford and gave her an amazing literary education, if you like, an arts education, she absolutely terrified me, and my speech impediment, if anything, got worse, not oh, better, yeah. and I ended up being needed to be sent to Miss Yvonne watkin Reese was equally terrifying and posh, but managed to sort it out. Right. So so Phyllis Williams, in my head, in, in one of her books, Gillian describes, Phyllis comes to visit them and the kids call a penis a billis. And when Phyllis comes to visit, they chant Phyllis the billis. Now, if I'd only known that sooner, it would have saved me a lot of grief. Yes, <laughs> Anyway, you know, shows Gillian doesn't take anything too seriously, that story. She's very interesting on being Welsh. She talks about a poet being the voice of a tribe and that people without much advanced formal education in Wales are more likely to be aware of poetry mm -hmm. than their social equals in England. I don't know if that's true, but it makes being a poet ordinary in Wales, she says. Yeah. Someone who crafts poetry. And as such, you know, Welsh poets will be asked to write a verse for a birthday, gravestone, whatever, really. Mm. And I think that's such a great idea to end on, that we're crafters, anybody can do it. Mm. And somebody like Gillian is certainly a fantastic role model, really. So, so big envy for those people on her workshop in Tina with, and we'll have to keep an eye out um, yeah. for other opportunities. 
Thank you very much, Diach Gillian Clark. You rock. <laughs> <laughs>